Our reading is from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 26. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed in Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Let's pray as we look at this section together. Our great God and Father, here, in one sense, is a curious passage and at first blush seems a little distant from us. 
But thank you for key truths here that we need to live by today. Help us, please. Would we understand the purpose of your word, its truth for us, so we, like Paul, take decisions for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, last year, uh, David McCarrath lost his job. He was um, working for the DWP, Department of Work and Pensions, as a, uh, a disability claim assessor. He's a medical doctor by background, had been for 30 years. But he was not willing to refer to a bearded man who was intending to transition by their preferred gender, madam. And so he was dismissed for that and lost his case to the employment tribunal. Now, uh, I imagine we may have differing views on that, whether it's you should actually just respect, is a matter of respect possibly, to, uh, to treat someone or, or, or use the, the pronouns that they refer. I, I imagine probably there may be differing opinions. But I think the striking thing was the, the ruling of the employment tribunal. Let me quote that briefly. Their decision was, belief in Genesis 1, 27, God made them male and female. Belief in Genesis 1, 27, and conscientious objection to transgenderism are in our judgment incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others. Now that's quite a significant ruling. It says if you believe in Genesis chapter 1, that is in conflict with fundamental human rights, and so you lose if uh, you take a stance such as David McCarrath. That subsequently, uh, so I'm told, even in the last week, two further tribunal decisions have, have reinforced that judgment. So does that mean that, that Christian belief is now incompatible with human rights? Well, okay, if you take a step backwards, I, I would certainly want to argue the case, and I think it's a pretty good case, and even secular theorists would say, actually, if you don't have a belief in a God that again, humans are made in their image, you have no basis for human rights. You're just making it up. You've, got, you've, you've built your human rights legislation upon clouds of pillar, pillar of clouds, and um, it makes no sense. Yeah, even... But that currently is the assertion. A belief in Genesis 1, well, you're contradicting human rights. So does that mean that the Christians can't be good citizens in the 21st century? Well, that is the dominant issue of chapters 21 to 28 of the book of Acts. Are Christians good citizens? That's the dominant issue of these eight chapters. Now, we've been working through the book of Acts uh, on and off over the last few years, uh, two main blocks. And uh, from now, um, for the next couple of months, we're, we're in then chapters 21 to 28. And uh, if I'm honest, these are often viewed as the dull bit of Acts. I mean, it starts all quite exciting. There's sort of crazy stuff going on. Thousands and thousands of people becoming Christians in a day. Vast geographical expansion of the Christian faith across uh, Asia and Europe. And then chapter 21 to 28, it pulls on trial again and again and again. Five times he's on trial. It's as if you sort of dropped in on a box set of a legal drama and uh, you slightly lose track of which trial is this? Uh, you know, who's the, what? Oh, who's the judge this time? He's on trial again and again and again. But the reason is that the emphasis 
is that Paul is defending the Christian faith and saying, no, look, okay, we follow Jesus ahead of Caesar, but we are conscientious citizens. And so once it's, he, he provides a model, a timeless model, for how Christians live as citizens of a government, of a state, whereas Christians, we would say, yeah, we follow Jesus, but we want to be the very best citizens we can be alongside that. But you just need to know Jesus first and the government second. So Christians in the book of Acts, then, they're being accused of being disruptive in the Roman Empire. And the reason we get a third of the book on this issue is it's recorded, no, no, the best of citizens are just loyal to Jesus. So I think it's a perfect part of scripture to look at in the 21st century. When the default setting for some Christians, such as a David McCarthy, he's no longer just a, a nice do-gooder. Actually, he's a do-badder. He's one of the bad guys for believing in Genesis chapter 1. That's the, the, where we're going to go or, or over the next few weeks, chapters 21 to 28. This passage in chapter 21, it's somewhat of an introduction. Given that climate, how does Paul make decisions? Decisions, decisions Paul's got to make. How does he make decisions in the light of hostility? And in one sense, chapter 21 and verse 13 are going to be the headline, certainly for today's passage. They try to say, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Just so you know, the thing that drives all my decision-making is, I'll die for the name of Jesus. Explained here, there was more on this last time, if you hear on why he thinks it's so important, chapter 20, verses 23 and 24, but briefly, to die for the name of Jesus, that is... I want people to recognize him as king. I want him to be honored because that's fitting and appropriate and, and lovely and, and right and just. I want him even to be honored and recognized because he's God. And also, I want people, I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus because he died for the salvation of anyone. I don't mind dying because I go to live forever with Jesus. I just want everyone to know that that's possible, that when they die, they can live forever in heaven with Jesus. So if my life goes, who cares? Because I'm going to heaven. But I want everyone to know that they can have eternity in joy as well. Happily sacrifice my life if a few more get to know that, he says. He's willing to die for the name of Jesus. So we're just going to look at two things then this morning. Uh, this is, these are what drive his decisions. Uh, we spend most time in the first. So he's ready to die for the name of Jesus. Uh, and then more briefly, he's ready to flex for the reputation of Jesus. So he's ready to die for the name, that's the main one. But he's willing to, or ready to flex for the reputation, but uh, those two will take us through it. First then, in these first 17 verses of chapter 21, Paul is ready to die for the name of Jesus. Now it starts off delightfully, chapter 21, verses one to three. Uh, Here's what you and I would like to be doing now. He's on a cruise and he uh, stops off on cars, very nice, goes to Rhodes, goes to Cyprus. That's what you should be doing uh, in a sort of cold September on a cruise around the Med. And uh, delightful, delightful, uh, in springtime. Um, So uh, well done, Paul. Um, But he's not interested in the sunshine, of course. He's really interested in seeing people. So chapter four, uh, uh, verse four. We sought out the disciples and stayed there with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not 
to go on to Jerusalem. We'll come back to that. Uh, on they sail and uh, a few more trips and uh, spend a bit of time. Uh, verse 7, they land in uh, Tyre, modern-day Lebanon, and, uh, and then they travel for a bit on land. Verse 8, they go and visit Philip the Evangelist of Acts 6 uh, fame. And uh, verse 10, after that, excuse me, after we've been there in Tyre, a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Verse 11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So here, a second in the chapter, it's a reference, the Spirit says, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Well, unsurprisingly then, verse 12, when we heard this, Luke and all the others traveling with Paul and the people he was visiting, pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But, verse 13, Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, oh, well, the Lord's will be done. And eventually, verse 17, they do get to Jerusalem. Now, step backwards. What do you make of that then? Paul's stubborn determination, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I mean, is he rebellious? I mean, twice, the, the Spirit of God says, you're going, there's going to be hardship, you're, you're going to suffer. And he says, yeah, stuff that, I'm just going. Is he just pig-headed? Well, let's try and put together the different references we've got here. Hopefully, they'll have come up on a, uh, a slide, Adam, if we've got that. So we've had a few references, so you can see them there. So um, just in the first, last few chapters, chapter 19 there's been a revival in Ephesus. Lots of people have become Christian in Ephesus. Chapter 19, verse 21, after this, all this had happened, Paul decided in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. We had last time in chapter 20, compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And then the references you have this time, chapter 21, through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And uh, chapter 21, uh, the other one from Agabus, the, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand them over to the Gentiles, uh, verse 11. So you've got sort of two references. The Spirit of God says, yeah, you can go to Jerusalem. And two saying, well, if you go to Jerusalem, there's going to be a great deal of suffering. And you think, do with that. I don't think it's that complicated. You just say a prediction is not a prohibition. So the Spirit, the Lord had clearly impressed upon Paul what he was to do. Go to Jerusalem. He knew that suffering is inevitable when he goes. Here in chapter 21, well, the Spirit of God tells Christians, yeah, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. But it's only them that say, therefore, don't go. Do you see, there's a difference between verse 11 in our passage today and verse 12. Verse 11, just a prediction. You're going to suffer. You're going to be imprisoned. Verse 12, we say, therefore, don't go. But there's a difference between prediction, what's going to happen, and the people saying, you mustn't go. 
You don't want to have those confused. So it seems then that the, 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 the Christian believers, they're given these, these impressions, this, this, this uh, guidance from God's spirit. Look, if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to be imprisoned. Why? Well, just so that when it happens, they're not thrown. They're not thinking all has gone wrong. Just because it's predicted doesn't mean it's prohibited. What about for you and me? What do we make of that? Let me say three little things, one minor, two major. The, the, the minor one, as in it's not the main point in this passage, but just a, a bit of a tangent. Look, you just need to know, look, when the Bible is clear, decisions are clear. And when you sense the Spirit is leading you, you need to get a sense check. So in terms of making decisions, when the Bible is clear, the decision is clear. When the Bible says, don't lie, don't steal, there's no ambiguity on that. Don't give up on the habit of meeting together. Well, you might have to do it on Zoom, but st certainly don't stop doing it. Those are just very clear commands, and so you keep them. There's no ambiguity about decision-making. If you think to yourself, I wonder if God is saying to me, that's when you get a sense check. That's when you seek out the opinion of others. I wonder if God, God wants me to have an extramarital affair, and I'd be happier over here. No, no, he does not. That is not God telling you to do that. Even though some people justified, I think God wants me to be happy. Yeah, but he's spoken very, very clearly. Don't commit adultery. So that's a complete no-no. A different camp would be, I wonder if God wants me to go to Mongolia to share the gospel there. Well, okay, maybe, maybe not. There's a hundred other questions you want to ask. You, want to, you get, certainly get the opinion of others. Take your time over that. But maybe, maybe not. But when the Bible is clear, the decision is really clear. When you get a sense of something, well, you need to get a sense check from others. That's just, a, in one sense, a tangential comment. But the two things I think particularly flow out of directly of what's here. In terms of decision-making, the first would be Paul placed the name of Jesus ahead of his own comfort. Now, let me be completely honest here. If I was thinking of doing something risky, ambitious, possibly really hard for the name of Jesus, and loads of my friends and other Christians said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. It's far too difficult. There's much easier options. I think I'd be willing to wisely listen to the advice of others in that case. There's a hard route. There's an easier route. And everyone says, why don't you take the easier route? Well, that would appeal to my heart, I've got to be honest with you. But here Paul says, no. No. Because for Paul, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace trumps everything. No doubt Luke was saying to him, but Paul, is it the wise thing to do to go to Jerusalem? Is it? And he says, you know, I've got to testify to God's grace. I've got to tell people about Jesus. That matters more than anything. I think I'm somewhat haunted. Uh, a trip I took overseas uh, a while back, he was speaking at something and chatting to the leaders in this other country about the, the church in the UK and relating to culture and what's the wise thing to do. Uh, and uh, one guy in particular said, yeah, yeah, you know, I meet a number of church leaders from the UK. There's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of wise jellyfish in the UK. He says, sometimes I wonder if you confuse wisdom with cowardice. 
And maybe he's right, maybe he's not. But sometimes that must be right. It's not the wise thing to do. Equals, I don't, you know, be a bit awkward. Don't really want to. Paul placed the name of Jesus ahead of his own comfort. He said, no, I'm sure you're right. Maybe it's not wise to go to Jerusalem, but I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus, so it's okay. And then alongside that, my last little comment here. Perhaps some of us just need to be careful of encouraging others to take the easy route. It's striking throughout this chapter, Paul knows what he's going to do. Chapter 20, he's told everyone in Ephesus, look, I know what's coming. Chapter 20, verse 23, prison and hardships face me. I know that. And so on his travels, he's not just going for some winter sun, like you and I might desire, a bit of cars, a bit of roads, etc. He's going to meet up with people. So verse 4 of chapter 21, he seeks out the disciples. Verse 7, he wants to stay with brothers and sisters. And uh, he tells them what's going on and that he's off to Jerusalem. I think he's seeking out encouragement. And they, everyone tells, says to him, no, don't go, don't go. Take the easier route, Paul. I think that's why he says, verse 13, oh, look, you're breaking my heart. Because this is hard enough. I just want some encouragement to keep going. And everyone's saying to me, mm, take the easy option. I mustn't do that. I, I know I've got to go. I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus. So perhaps, perhaps for some of us here, that's a challenge. Not to encourage others to always take the easy option. I think it's really hard if you're Christian parents and your child says, I want to go to Mongolia. Just not to say to them, oh, darling, really, can't you serve Jesus just in this country in a more sort of sedate way? I think it's really hard. But Paul was willing to die for the name of Jesus. That's the first thing that drives his decisions, serving the name, making sure that people hear the name. Uh, Then secondly, somewhat of a uh, balance to that. He is ready to flex for the reputation of Jesus. More briefly then, Paul arrives in Jerusalem, verse 17, and uh, meets the brothers and sisters um, warmly. And we're told a little bit later in chapter 24, he hands over the collection of money he's taken from the Gentile churches. Read all about it in uh, 2 Corinthians. He's been gathering this money just to say, look, Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and and, and non-Jews, we're all one in Jesus. So here's a lot of money for the church in Jerusalem, which is um, suffering just because of uh, famine failures. And he hands that over. And so you'd think this is a good moment of bringing these two branches of the church uh, together. And it sort of goes well. He tells everyone what he's been up to. So uh, uh, verse 18, Paul and the rest of us, says Luke, went to see James and all the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. Oh, this is great, but there is a possible issue. Verse 20, they said to Paul, brother... You can see many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the, for the law of the Old Testament. Now, look, the problem is, verse 21, they've been informed that you teach that, that all the Jews who live amongst the Gentiles, they've got to turn away from Moses, and they should not circumcise their children or, or live according to the customs. And that's a problem. Now, it's not true 
It's not true that Paul is saying, give up all your cultural customs if you become a Christian. He's not saying that, but that's the accusation. It's being unfairly maligned here. But brother, what do we do about that? Because, you know, you've arrived and it's going to cause a bit of a stink. Tell you what, here's a plan. Verse 22. Um, Verse 23. Do what we tell you. There are four men with us. They've made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone knows that there's no truth in these reports uh, about you. I don't need to know the details, but four men are taking a Nazarite vow, which is to shave their heads to say, we are really keen. We're sort of full on to, to serve the Lord. Why don't you pay for that? And if you pay for that, everyone will go, oh, okay, you know, he's okay with our cultural customs as Jews. He's not telling us that everything's got to change. Verse 25 is important. Look, we're not saying that the Gentiles have to do everything that we're doing. They can keep their customs. That's okay. Point is, Paul thinks shaving your head to show you're zealous, whatever, you don't need to do that. It's just a strange hangover. But if you want to do that, that's fine. And so I'm willing to flex here in order to avoid this sort of split in the church. I'll pay for uh, the, the Jewish Christians to carry out this practice. Now, it doesn't go so well. We'll see that next time. But the point is, Paul is willing to flex on his own opinions, because it doesn't really matter. Shave your head, not shave your head. Get yourself ceremonially washed or don't, whatever. He doesn't doesn't think it's necessary, but he's willing to do it so that the church doesn't have a fallout, so that the reputation of Jesus isn't maligned. What do we do with that for you and me? Well, again, the accusation is verse 21. Paul, you're teaching that if people become Christians, they have to give up all their cultural background, their cultural customs. Well, that accusation still comes in the 21st century. It can come in China. Look, uh, if you, you know, we, we hear that if you become a Christian, you, 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 you reject China. You, you reject your sort of nationalism. No, no, you don't have to do that. I mean, it's Jesus first, but you can be an excellent Chinese citizen. You don't, you don't have to do that. Or in the UK, oh, if you become a Christian or Christians, they, they, they disagree with British values. No, no, it's, it's not. It's Jesus first. But you, Christians should be the very best of citizens in lots of ways. But that accusation still comes. Very, very briefly, you can ask me about this after. There's, there's a danger of me just making a superficial comment on this. But in a season in the life of a church where we are under a government and we do things that we don't really like, like meeting like this and, and not singing, I think this is an occasion where Christians say, look, it's all right. I mean, Jesus first, but we're willing to flex and, and not sing and sit with these chasms between us and have to meet in five services on a Sunday rather than just gathering as we normally Look, we'll do that. We'll do that for the reputation of Jesus. We'll do that because we honor the government. We'll do that because we're the best of citizens. We don't like it. We may have very different views on whether it's sensible, but we'll do it. We'll do it. We're willing to flex on that. That's not an issue you want to die on. But Paul is here willing to flex for the reputation of Jesus. Now the challenge for you and me in a passage such as this is, you have to hold these two together. 
ready to die for the name of Jesus, ready to flex for his reputation. You've got to hold them together and not get them confused. So it would be a mistake, and I think sometimes the church does do this, to bend always with the culture, but never make any sacrifice for Jesus. To be so obsessed with maintaining, oh, but look at our Christian heritage. But it costs you nothing, and you never speak about Jesus. That would be to get the two completely the wrong way around. But let me finish, and this will cause embarrassment, but let me finish, I think, with one excellent example of getting this right. So one young man here at church is uh, hoping, planning next summer to join a mission team in uh, the Horn of Africa. Now that is not a nice part of the world. That is not a safe part of the world. But he's willing to go and suffer for the name of Jesus. Look, even, even before you open your mouth as a Christian, it's just hardship in that part of the world. You know, it's, the rule of law is not paramount in, in lots of elements there. But willing to go for the name of Jesus. Alongside that, by conviction personally, a vegan, he started to eat meat. Because he knows that on the mission field, you can't sit down with guys and say, well, I'm a vegan. They'll just ignore you. You're just a weird Westerner. So you have to... So he's given up his own preferences. He's willing to flex upon the meat-eating thing because he wants people to hear about Jesus. That, I think, is getting these two just right. I'm ready to die for the name, certainly suffer for the name, and I'm willing to flex upon my personal preferences, my cultural background, my convictions here, because this matters, and this less so. Ready to die for the name of Jesus, but ready to flex culturally for his reputation. That is how Paul makes decisions. What about you and me? Maybe easy, I think, to get it the wrong way round. But Christians got to have that attitude willing to die for the name of Jesus because he was willing to die for our salvation. And if others hear of his willingness to die for them, they can live forever. So of course, of course that's the right decision. It lasts into eternity. Willing to die for his name. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, here, here in the Apostle Paul, we see an attitude which is uh, challenging to us, striking to us. Father, help us to be those who in our hearts, in our decisions, are willing to sacrifice, willing to enter hardships for the name of the Lord Jesus. And not standing on our own rights, not putting preeminent our comfort or our own cultural background. Father, when we make decisions, would we be the best of citizens in so many ways as Christians? But would we be willing to endure anything so that others hear of the Lord Jesus Christ who is willing to die for them? Pray it in his name. Amen.